Good morning. Talking about metaphors, this chapter always reminds me of one huge sandwich made from one slice, sliced loaf of bread. It's therefore and for, and it's sort of one thing heaped on the other. It's all, it's chapter 8, starting at verse 7, going to the end of the chapter. Romans. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what their nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Your body is dead because of sin. Set your spirit, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning 
as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. We hope for what he already has. But if we hope for him, we do not... But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait in... We wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If the first week in this series was a scenic kind of helicopter ride and then last week was a crazy rally drive, 
This week is more like a hike. First week, you might remember, we hovered over the beginning of this world and then we hovered over the end and we saw God's goal for his world, God's goal to dwell with his people in a perfected world that can't be tainted forever. And we saw in the second week, in a crazy car rally, we raced from the beginning all the way to that end and saw how God brings about his goal for the world. Today, we're slowing things right down. We're asking, what does the end mean for us now in the present? How does it affect how we live step by step? And the key to figuring this out is, is what we saw last week. Right now, we're in the overlap of the ages. The new age begins with Jesus' first coming, but it won't end, the old age won't end, until Jesus' second coming. And if we belong to Jesus, then in Him, we belong to that new age already. But at the very same time, we remain in this old age. And it's not until Jesus returns that we'll fully experience all the benefits of the new age. So our job today on this hike is to figure out how we should live as those who belong to the new age, even while we're here in this old age. And to do this, we need to be able to answer these two questions. What do I have already from the new age now? And what don't I have already from the new age? Because the old age has not yet ended. Another way of putting these two questions is like this. What benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection do I have now? And what benefits do I not yet have? They're exactly the same questions. And just before we get into the details of figuring that out though, we need to just zoom out a little bit and consider the hike as a whole. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's something that we haven't addressed yet. And that is the question of whether there are different phases between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Makes sense to know beforehand whether you're going to be hiking through sand in the desert or snow in the mountains. It'll have a pretty big impact on how you prepare for it and how you approach things. And if there are different phases between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, then it makes sense for us to know what phase we're in so that we can know how we should approach things on our hike. In fact, maybe you've been wondering why on a series on the last things, we haven't been looking at the terrain of of how Jesus' first coming progresses to his second coming. We did a car rally right from the beginning, the garden right through to the garden city, but why haven't we done a car rally joining up all the dots between his first coming and his second coming? Once upon a time, that's certainly how I would have um, been thinking at this point. I would have wanted to know that. In fact, I reckon I would have been pretty irritated by now irritated with the speaker talking about the last things and then talking about the beginning and then the end and then hearing about the end arriving in the, um, the, the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus unexpectedly, I would have been sitting there trying to stop myself calling out, get to the point already. I would have been thinking, tell me about the rapture. Tell me about the Antichrist coming and the beasts, and the millennium, and the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, and and the time of great tribulation, persecution. And I would have been thinking about all those things as if they were all future things. Once upon a time, I would have expected that a a series on the last things would have been talking about the next 10 to 1,000 years from now. And so I would have 
been expecting to hear about all the different phases before the coming of the very last day. My questions weren't, what do I have already from the new age and what don't I have already? My questions would have been more like, will the rapture come first and then the tribulation, then the millennium and then Christ's return or will it be the tribulation first and then the rapture and then Christ's return and then the millennium? Now, for many of us, none of that just made sense just then but that's okay because as far as I can see with those kind of questions, they're virtually useless for us. The answer to them doesn't particularly help us that much because regardless of how God leads us up to the end of the world, the implications are always the same. The implications always seem to be keep your faith in Jesus and stay ready for His return at any moment. And if anything, having a detailed kind of map of the terrain ahead can be a serious distraction from how we should just get on with things now. Jesus says we can't know when He's coming back, but we can know what we should be doing now while we wait. And all we really need to know about the terrain ahead is this, what's to come is the same as what's been until the very last day. What's to come for us is the same as what's been behind us until that very last day when Jesus comes back. So the phase that the apostles were in is the same phase that we're in. And if Jesus doesn't come back, the phase they're in in a thousand years' time from now will be exactly the same phase as what we're in. And what we can expect to see in this phase is both the kingdom of God triumphing and at the very same time, the members of God's kingdom suffering oppression. Now, you might remember last week we saw that the Old Testament prophets expected suffering first and then the coming of God's kingdom afterwards as a separate event. But last week we saw that Jesus brings God's kingdom already and yet in places like Matthew 24, Jesus tells His disciples to expect suffering at exactly the same time. Have a listen to how Jesus talks about the last times here in Matthew 24, verse 6. He says to His disciples, you'll hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. In this overlap of the ages, we have seen in the past and we will see in the future God's kingdom advance. And we have seen in the past and we will see in the future God's people oppressed and suffering. But we don't necessarily see these things in a linear way. You know, if you think of a hike, it's not like we're just climbing up a mountain from the base and it just increases, increases. Instead, we go up for a while and then things go down for a while and again, things go up for a while. So, sometimes things get better, sometimes things get worse and then again, sometimes they get better and it goes on like that. So, if you, if you think of the events of today that we see in the world around us, so we see pretty severe persecution of Christians, we see... ISIS beheading Christians, North Korea imprisoning them, 
Coptics being blown up in Egypt and we see wars and, and natural disasters. Or think positively, we see God's kingdom exploding in places like Iran and China and South America and Africa. Are all these sorts of things signs of the end? Yes, absolutely they are. We're in the last days. And if Jesus doesn't come back today, then we'll see more of these end time events in the years ahead. What's to come in front of us is the same as what's been behind us until the very last day. It makes me think of a sandcastle on the beach with the, with the tide coming in. I don't know if you do this, I seem to be more into building sandcastles than even my kids are for some reason. They've, they've gone hours ago and I'm still there. That's not, that's not usually mine, they're quite disappointing for the amount of effort that goes into mine. But when you're building a sandcastle, suddenly there's one wave there that's just threatening the whole thing, splashing against the walls and it looks like this is the end. But then... For the next little while, things calm down and and the waves go out and they seem far away again. But then suddenly, another wave's there and this time it's even higher than before, reaching up on the walls and it looks like surely this has got to be the end. But again, things die back and things just keep going on and on like that until the very end. It's the same when it comes to God's kingdom growing and the oppression, the kind of end time oppression that that we see as Christians as well. And it might uh, make you think, will there be a final wave that comes, though? A, a final tribulation and, and a, a final antichrist, a final persecution uh, before Jesus comes on that very last day? And the answer is, well, there has to be, doesn't there? There has to be one final one just before He comes. But it's like John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He writes to them and he says, Dear children, this is the last hour and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. It's exactly the same for us. In a sense, every wave of persecution that seriously threatens Christians feels like it's going to be the last. But we won't know if it's the final wave or not and in the end it doesn't really change anything. At every point, what matters is faithfully trusting in Jesus, whether it's the final wave or not. What this means for us now is that we already know what phase we're in. On this hike, we can know exactly the terrain that we should be expecting. We should be expecting that Jesus is ruling now and His kingdom is advancing now, yes. But exactly the same time, we should be expecting to see opposition and suffering for God's people right now. Is that what you're expecting? It's sort of, it's hard to expect it when we're so comfortable here and in a government-owned building. See, generally, it's not happening that much to us here in Australia. We don't see it that much, but we still do see it. I know someone who's in Australia whose father threatened to kill them if they became a Christian... That's exactly what we're talking about. And even if we're not suffering like that for being God's people right now, we should be ready for it. We shouldn't be surprised by it. To me, it looks like maybe the waves are just starting to come back in here in Australia. I mean, could you imagine a scenario where where you lose your job for your Christian faith? 
the battle lines in this are pretty much always to do with the implications of the gospel rather than the details of the gospel. So in the early days, the Christians, they weren't killed, they weren't thrown to the lions so much for their faith in Jesus as they were killed for what their faith in Jesus meant. They were killed because they wouldn't bend the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. That's why they were killed. Just say Caesar is Lord. That's fine. That's all you've got to do. But they knew that the implications of the gospel would not let them do that. And that's why they were killed. These days, I think it's already within the realm of of, um, possibility that your job could be affected for staying true to the implications of your faith in Jesus. So if you insist that Jesus alone determines how you think about sexual ethics, if you won't bend the knee um, to same-sex marriage and toe the company line, well, it's already within the realm of possibility that you could lose your job or have your name trashed on social media. We've already seen examples of this. We don't go looking for this to happen to us, but we shouldn't be surprised if these sorts of things do happen. If we understand the overlap of the ages, then we'll actually be expecting this kind of suffering and more than that, we'll be ready to face it. In fact, if we understand the overlap of the ages, we'll actually be prepared to put ourselves in situations that make it more likely that we'll face this kind of persecution. Because the next thing that we see is that the end in the present means that the gospel must be preached. The end right now means that the gospel has got to be preached. Even after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the disciples couldn't really understand exactly what was happening. So they were expecting still that the old age would end then and there and that all the benefits of the new age would come. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they say to Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But Jesus says to them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These were Jesus' very last words on earth. I mean, this is pretty important for how we should be thinking about life now, don't you think? Jesus says the restoration, the full benefits of the new age, that they're to come at a later date. But he says that what remains before then is for the gospel to go out to the very ends of the earth. Do you see what this means for our hike that we're looking at today? From God's perspective, this time, this overlap exists as a period of grace for people to come into His kingdom. This is the time for the the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. This is what this time is all about before the end itself comes to the earth. Is that how you view your life's journey? About being all about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? I don't know about you, but I often feel guilty when I ask those kind of questions. I I think a lot of Christians do feel guilty when we talk about this. And I think it's because we forget that it happens in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we forget that it happens through ordinary people in everyday lives. 
one of you was telling me recently about some friends who became Christians who'd been watching you for many, many decades and um, who just said to you recently that, they'd, that over those decades they'd seen God at work in your life just in the way that you live. And this had blown you away that God had been at work all through that time when you hadn't even realised it or seen it for yourself necessarily. See, it's not just when we sell our possessions and move to Iran that we take the gospel to the ends of the world, though it for sure can be that. But it's also in the ordinary step-by-step plodding on this hike. It's how we do life. It's how we work. It's how we love our, our, our spouse and kids. It's how we face tragedy or stress or being hurt by people. It's even in how we face our death. And it's in how we speak about our God. In all these things, God works in us and through us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Is that what you see your life's mission being all about? And if you have kids, is that what you see their life being all about? Or do we have a higher goal for them, like their education or their employment prospects or sporting achievements, their happiness or their health, or even the way they relate to you as a parent. Above all these things, if we understand what it means to live in the overlap of the ages, then we'll understand that steering how we do all those things is helping them to see their place in taking the gospel to the ends of the world. When Kathy and I were uni students, um, I remember that we heard a, a sort of talk on the end times the last days like what we're doing these last few weeks and um, some of us asked the speaker a question saying is it sinful not to want Jesus to return you know with 20 there's plenty to do um, just wanted to know if is it okay if we just pray that Jesus would adjust his schedule for us and put it off for a little while and the speaker gently but very persuasively answered yes I mean, what could we possibly want more than the goal that God wants for us? God dwelling with us forever in a world perfected. What could possibly be more inviting, more wonderful to us than that? Whatever it is, it'd have to be an idol, wouldn't it? To put it above God's goal for us. But there is actually only one thing one thing that could legitimately make us wish to delay Jesus' return, and that is that we so share God's heart for His goal. We so share His heart to want to see people dwelling with Him forever that we want more time for them, more time to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Life now is not about building our own private kingdoms in this old age, turning an eye, a blind eye to the new age. Instead, the end in the present means that right now we live as citizens of what's to come. Right now, we can live with that goal very much in mind and in view in our lives. The heart of living in the overlap means that 
we've got to know what we've already received and, and what we will receive in the future. We've got to know the difference. And the greatest of all the new covenant blessings that we already have received is, of course, without a doubt, the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians 1, verse 13, Paul writes, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is our connection to every single end-time benefit right now in the present. Because of Him, Jesus' death counts for us. Because of Him, we're forgiven. We're spiritually resurrected right now because of Him. Because of the Holy Spirit, God dwells with us. Because of the Holy Spirit, our, our, our future is assured. It's secure. And because of the Holy Spirit, we can know how to live as children of God right now. In Romans 8, Paul says that because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation for believers whatsoever. But it's not just the consequences of sin that Jesus saves us from. In Romans 8 verse 12, Jan read for us before, Paul writes this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Holy Spirit leads us to, to put to death the misdeeds of the body until that time that Jesus returns and, and sin will be done away with in our bodies. What we have now already is the consequences of sin done away with. We saw that last week. There is just no future judgment for our sin. It's dealt with. But it's more than that, what we have right now. Our slavery to sin, the rule of sin, is already broken right now. What we don't yet have, though, is the eradication of sin. The effects of my sin and, and the effects of other people's sin in this, in this world and in, in my life, they're not removed from me yet. The only solution that, that's going to remove sin from me finally is actually to be resurrected, new bodies. Uh, to me, it, uh, and this illustration probably falls down on so many levels because I haven't understood the nerdiness behind it and because it's probably heresy somehow anyway. But to me, it sounds like a firmware update. You know how like those electrical boxes in the news, somehow you could hack them, I don't know what you could do, um, turn the light on and off in people's fridge or something. It, they needed a, a firmware update to make them no longer vulnerable. In one sense, our resurrected bodies are like a firmware update. Sin is dealt with and removed forever, but the only way sin is going to be dealt with and removed forever is our resurrected bodies. Until that time, it will always be present within us. If we understand the overlap of the ages, we're not going to be naive about that. Our hike is not a walk in the park. Our hike is a gruelling struggle. 
it's a grueling struggle, not just with the world out there. It's, it's a grueling struggle with the world in here, within us, sin. If we understand the overlap of the ages, we won't be naive like that. But on the other hand, neither will we be defeatist. The Holy Spirit dwells within us right now. The Holy Spirit, Himself God, is prompting us to live as citizens of this new age right now. See, our motivation to live this way, it's never fear, it's never guilt, it's never pride. Instead, it's always about being who we already are. Our job is to be who we already are. We already belong to the end. So when we live as citizens of what's to come now, we're just being true to who we really are in Christ. Now, living like this now is difficult. It's imperfect. We do it so imperfectly. We do it so inconsistently and we do it so painfully. But then, when Jesus returns, then it'll be easy. We'll do it perfectly, we'll do it consistently and we'll do it joyfully. And if we belong to Jesus, keep in mind the Holy Spirit will never give up on us. You know, when we fail, we just completely detoured off the track, the hike, and you come to your senses, the Holy Spirit's not up there on the track. The Holy Spirit is there with us, calling us back, prompting us to be who Jesus has made us to be. See, what matters on this hike is just the next step. And then once we've taken that step, what matters is just the next step. What this means for us on this hike is that we shouldn't be surprised to find sin in our lives, but neither should we tolerate it. Sin can't rule over us. It just doesn't have the power to do it. So as we keep finding sin in our lives, and we're going to keep finding it, we need to also keep finding the lead of the Holy Spirit to get rid of it. We might feel like sin rules over us, like perhaps we might feel like we can't break um, a pornography habit or something like that, or some addiction, or some sinful habit that our parents have somehow blessed us with, that we've inherited. We might feel like sin rules over us at those times, but that's the devil's lie to us. Sin doesn't rule. It's broken. Don't believe the lie. These things can be overcome, not easily, but following the Holy Spirit's lead, it will happen. See, life now is not supposed to be easy. Many Christians have believed a really unbiblical idea that life now is supposed to be comfortable. And even that verse that we, we had read before, people use to kind of support this idea that God promises us a comfortable life now. You know, Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. But did you notice that that passage was read just before, that it's all about groaning? The creation is groaning, we are groaning, the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. This time, the passage says, is like labour. Now, I can't tell you exactly 
what labour is like and I wouldn't dare try to. But I can tell you, I know enough to know it's not comfortable, is it? If we're expecting a smooth, comfortable, pain-free life, then we've got to have really misunderstood something. This period of overlap is not meant to be the time where we experience all the benefits that Christ has won for us. This time is about labour pain. What's coming is the time of comfort. So right now, we need to know that we're not promised that things will go smoothly. Like, we're not promised that things will go smoothly in our relationships. Sometimes some Christians, and they think if they marry another Christian, then everything will go smoothly. Sometimes some Christians who, who are very confused, they expected that God had given them a promise that things would go smoothly with their kids, or with their church, or in their work. But these things, they're just not guaranteed now. Just like we're not guaranteed or promised a comfortable life financially now whole prosperity doctrine that you might have heard about, the idea that God wants us to be financially well off right now, it's a confusion of the time that we're in. And like we saw last week, we're not promised good health right now, or that our sickness will automatically be healed. We're not promised long life for ourselves or for those we love. All of these things, they're a misunderstanding of the time that we're in. We are still waiting for this old age to end and we wish it was already. And until it does, sin, relationship breakdown, sickness, poverty, they're all still realities we face. And unless Jesus comes back first, first, then death is a reality that we will all face. I think it's actually really sad when Christians have got a desperation to escape death that shows that they've given it more power than it really deserves. See, don't get me wrong, death is always bad. It's always our enemy. And even though it takes us straight to be with Jesus, straight away, it's never a good thing, even still. But if we panic in the face of death, then we squander the opportunity to show that our prize and treasure is not found by clinging to this old age. Our prize and treasure can't die can't be taken away from us because our true treasure is dwelling with our God and and death just can't touch that. In Romans 8.28, it says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. And then we see God's purpose in verse 29. Have a look at it. For those God foreknew, He also predestined, and here it is, to be conformed to the image of His Son. The good that God works for is not that we'll live a comfortable life now, but that we'll be conformed to the image of His Son. That we'll become more like Jesus. And God works towards this goal in all things, we're told. Pain and suffering can't stop God working towards this goal. In fact, especially through pain and suffering, God works through this goal. Death can't eclipse this good that God is taking us to, because when we die, that's when we'll be fully conformed to the image of His Son. And here, actually, we see something else added to that goal for this creation that we've been looking at. 
the end, God's goal for, for this world is to dwell with his people in Jesus in a world that can't be tainted or lost or desecrated because we've been remade in the image of his son. Living in the overlap of the ages, it doesn't mean that we withdraw from this world into the next. Instead, it means that we're freed up to be able to fully give ourselves to each step, each moment in the present. We can afford to seize the day, not because today is all we've got, but because no matter what today gives us, it just can't rob us of the eternity that we have ahead of us. In one sense, we've got a very different kind of bucket list to most people. See, it's not all about what we can get from today because this is all we've got, fun, pleasure, meaning or fulfilment. Because our future is safe, we can actually afford to approach each day thinking, what can I give to this day? Because of Jesus, we're a people that can afford to take risks on this hike. We can give ourselves to each moment as we find it rather than trying to take from that moment. See, if we get the overlap of the ages right, if, if I follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in this life, it means that in this life, that when I need to, I can accept sickness and loss, if that's what life brings. I can forego some pleasure, if that's the right thing to do. I can afford to look stupid, if it's necessary. I can lose face and say sorry. I can risk a friendship to tell someone about Jesus. I could accept singleness, even if it's not what I wanted, if I understand my place in the overlap of the ages. I could lose my job for my faith. I could not act on my same-sex attraction and be okay with that, if I understand the overlap of the ages. I could leave my great church and go on a church plant I could afford to send my children or my grandchildren as missionaries to who knows where, or I could even go myself and give up on my lifestyle here. I could even stay true when ISIS is raising the axe above my head for being a Christian. See, we can afford now to die because of Jesus, because we'll live forever. Our future is secure. We can live as citizens of what's to come now, becoming more and more like Christ till he returns or till he calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we find it so hard to live in this time. Lord, we're contending with our own sinfulness, the devil lying to us. Lord, we have so many blessings and, and, and we have your Holy Spirit within us and yet we feel the struggle and the tension of being pulled apart. Lord, help us to remember just who you are, your heart and your power. Lord, you've not given us a weak spirit, you've given us the Holy Spirit. Lord, help our trust in you to be absolute and Lord, when we fail... Help us to look up back to you and just take the next step following the lead of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that in this struggle, the, the victory is certain, that there's no doubt that we'll be there with you forever in that perfected world while ever our faith is in Jesus. 
We are so thankful for that, Lord, because when we're honest, we fail in this struggle all the time. Lord, help us to pick ourselves up and just take the next step, listening to Jesus, listening to the Holy Spirit, trusting your way. Lord, we pray that we would be people who see our lives rightly in this time and that we'd be happy to take our place in taking the gospel to the ends of the world. Not thinking that means we've got to become someone we're not, but just in our ordinary everyday lives, living out what we know and pointing people to you as we can. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to be able to do this. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and we ask that he would come back soon and liberate us from the sin within and from this world that so needs you. We pray in his name. Amen.